and also free spray on sunscreen, 31 Hong Kong dollars. Two big sun hats, 70 Hong Kong dollars. Two mega bee shovels, 58 Hong Kong dollars. Digging to America, priceless. There are some things in life money can't buy. All right. Good morning, everyone. Okay, I promise. That's the last of the MasterCard things, okay? Because we're winding up our series, Priceless, the Enduring Commitments of a Christ Follower. What we've been looking at are the core values of our church, these core commitments of what we're committed to. These are the things that are to mark each of our lives, those of us who are followers of Christ. These are things that are rooted, these commitments, deeply rooted in the Scriptures. And these commitments are what we believe will be the driving force that allow us to further the mission that God's given us here of changing lives to change the world. So what are we committed to, Door Creek Church? Well, we're committed to a life of worship, worshiping God with all of our hearts and all of life. We're committed to the Bible's authority, to centering our lives on God's truth, to the richness of community, to growing together in Christ, to compassionate service, humbly extending Christ's mercy and compassion to those in need. We're committed to intentional training, to preparing and releasing God's people for ministry. We're committed to persistent prayer, to devoting ourselves continually to be people of prayer. And today, we're committing ourselves to joyful witness, sharing and living the good news. That's what followers of Christ do. Followers of Christ joyfully share and live out the good news. Jesus told a wonderful story a long time ago, 2,000 plus years ago, about this idea of sharing our faith. And he used the parable of the sower. And I was imagining if Jesus told the story today, it might sound something like this. It was early spring and farmer John got up on his John Deere tractor to go plant the back 40. As he started trekking through the field, some of the seed fell on this 4 by 4 trail that the kids had been running through the field all winter and spring. Seed didn't really get down into the ground. In fact, it was just that same day when some wild turkeys walked by and they gobbled it all up. Some of the seed, though, fell on some shallow ground, some of this rocky soil. Kind of grew up pretty quick at first, but when the heat of summer came, it didn't really have firm roots, and in fact, it withered and died. Some of the seed, though, fell in some good soil, at least at first it seemed so, but then some thorns grew up around it, choked it off, and, and that wheat died off as well. But then there was seed that fell into that good old Wisconsin, dark, rich soil, and it was rooted, and it was established, and it was a bumper crop kind of harvest increase was a hundredfold. When Jesus told that story, his disciples were left kind of scratching their head. Great story, Jesus, but I don't really get it. What, what's it about? And so he told them, and he tells us what's it about in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. So take your Bibles, open up to the parable of the sower. In Luke's account, the same parallel story is told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. But we'll look at Luke 8, verse 11 through 15. And you'll find that on page 731. And Jesus, having told the story, not my version, but his, then comes to verse 11. 
And he says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So as we get into this value of joyful witness and, and ask the question, why? Why is this? I mean, there's a lot of things the leadership of this church could have chosen. Why is this one of the seven? Well, I think lessons from the back 40 may help us here. And the fundamental uh, lesson here from the story of the sower is this, that when the word of God gets implanted in the follower of Christ's heart, it reproduces. In Matthew's account, it says 30, 60, a hundred times, that when the word gets into a follower of Christ, it, it gives a harvest, it reproduces. Now think about the lesson of the farmer, the lesson of the seed and the lesson of the soils here in this story. First, the lesson of the farmer. That Christ's followers are like farmers. Farmers, by definition, are people who plant things so that they can farm. You don't plant, there's nothing really to farm, is there? There's no harvest this fall if they haven't planted the seed over the acres of their property. We too, as Christ's followers, by definition, are people who plant seed. Or as he said to his early disciples, the fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You go out and catch men with the love of God. That's what the Great Commission's all about, to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what we do as Christ's followers. There's a lesson of the seed. And the lesson here is the seed doesn't always reproduce, does it? And there's two fundamental reasons in Jesus' story. The first is there's an enemy that doesn't want the word of God to take root in a person's life. So they hear it, but they don't understand it. And then he snatches it away. You need to know that maybe the enemy knows something you don't know about the word of God. The word of God is powerful. The gospel is the power of God to save, to change our lives from the inside out. And so the enemy comes and snatches it away. That's why one of the commitments we have, if you're new here to Door Creek, checking out the claims of Christ, we want to be a place that's constantly explaining the word of God. That's what the Alpha class is about. Tomorrow night when 30 people gather around dinner to study, what, what are the claims of Christ? That's where you should always feel free with your questions. Say, drop me an email. Call us on the phone. I don't get it. Because the danger is, if you hear it and don't understand it, it'll be snatched away. It's a lesson of the seed. Then there's a lesson of the soils. The lesson of the soils is really a lesson of our hearts. So it gives a paradigm for us to say, which soil best typifies my heart? Is it the hard heart, that footpath soil that's trodden down and the seed can't get into it? We hear it, but we don't understand it, and it's gone. Is it the shallow heart, that rocky ground where initially we have a positive reaction to it? We hear it, we receive it with joy, but all of a sudden, when tough times come, 
We say, hey, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. I thought being a follower of Christ meant a life of ease. I didn't know it might be difficulty. So we chuck it. There's the distracted heart. That ground, that seed that grows up in the ground where the thorns come around it and choke it off. And what are the things that choke it off? Jesus says, it's the worries of this life. Yeah. It's the stuff right now that, you know, you've been thinking about since you got here. The worries of this life. We get distracted not just by the worries of this life. Jesus says, we get distracted with riches. We get distracted with pleasure. Our pleasure. Looking for it. And these things don't allow the word to take root and bear fruit in our life. But then there's the good heart. He calls it a noble heart. Typified by that good soil that hears it, that understands it, that retains it, persevering in belief that I believe this is God's word. As Dave said, our sure foundation is the promise of God to do this. So which soil best describes your heart? Jesus says the reason we ought to be committed to a joyful witness is because That's what happens when God's word takes root in our hearts. It grows and it reproduces. Look at this verse in Colossians 1.6. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit. Right now, all over the world. And it's growing, this gospel is. Paul says, just as as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. Now, you add to this some other compelling reasons of why it is this ought to be a value at Door Creek Church, why it ought to be a value in your life as a follower of Christ. Consider the heart of God, the heart of our Father, who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son to die. That Those who believe in him should not die, but have eternal life. That's the essence of Jesus' teaching in John 3.16. Or in 2 Peter, Peter writes this about the Father's heart. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. To come to this time of turning. That's what that word repentance means. This U-turn in life where you go, whoa, I've been going this way. That's what David was talking about. And I messed up my life, and I'm going to start following your way, God. Change me from the inside out. God is patient, not not wanting any of us to perish. Consider the mission of Christ on this earth and the mission of his church. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost, and we are his presence now here on this earth. We're his hands and his feet. The scripture says we're his body, and we go out as his ambassadors, sharing and living the good news. And then there's... The Bible's teaching about hell that needs to compel us to be joyful witnesses. Jesus said a lot of things about hell. And what he said about hell is frightening. He, we read this in John's Gospel, John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Jesus said in Matthew 13, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them in the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or in Matthew 25, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous 
to eternal life. The teaching in Scripture is clear. What we do with Christ today matters for eternity. If we decide here in this life to say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to follow you. Then he's going to let us do that for eternity. Eternally separated from God. It's what the Bible talks about when it's describing hell. And so we have these compelling reasons from the doctrine of hell to the mission of the church, to the heart of our Savior, to the heart of our Father, to the nature of the gospel itself to reproduce, to help us understand this is why we're committed to being people who give a joyful witness, sharing and living the good news. So that begs the question, what is the good news? What is the good news that we're sharing? The answer is the gospel is the good news. In fact, the word gospel means just that, good news. And when you read about what that word points to in the New Testament, all of a sudden you find out it's the gospel of God. Romans chapter 1, about who he is. It's the gospel of God's grace in Acts chapter 20. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins, taking our place. It's the good news of his kingdom. Remember last week, kingdom speaks about the reign of Christ. It's the good news of peace. Peace that passes human understanding. That's what Dave was talking about when he said, and there was this wash of of peace and forgiveness that came over him. Peace with God, the peace of God. It's the good news of our salvation. It's our good news. How God has rescued us from the curse, from death, from the guilt of our sins, from the enemy. And this is the good news. And when Paul writes about the good news in Romans chapter 1, we find out that if this was a good news promised beforehand, and it's the good news that has everything to do with his son, Jesus Christ. So notice what he writes at the beginning of his letter to those in Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, King David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The phrase promised beforehand is a good reminder that the good news that we have in the New Testament is a good news that was being given way back in the Old Testament. So remember when we were going through cover to cover, celebrating Christ from Genesis to Revelation, we said the good news was first introduced in Genesis 3.15 when God is giving this word of judgment to Adam and Eve, but in the midst of judgment, there's a promise of grace. Eve, one of your male descendants, he is going to be bruised by this enemy, this serpent who's just deceived you into rebelling against me. He is going to be bruised by that serpent, by the devil himself, but he is going to crush the enemy's head. Paul writing Galatians says, hey, when Abraham got the promise from God that God would be his God and that he would be his people and that he would bless him and through him all the families of the world would be blessed, 
Paul says in Galatians 3 that Abraham was receiving the promise of the good news, of the gospel. It's promised beforehand. It's what Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he gets the gospel down to just a soundbite, if you will. Look at the verse up on the screen. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And now he gives us the essence of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. Notice, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That is, that he really died. And that he was raised on the third day. That is, that he's alive today. And again, according to the scriptures. So, the gospel is not God's plan B. Oh my word, what happened? Pilate and the religious leaders have got a hold of my son and they've impaled him on a cross. I got to think of something else here. No, no, no. This was his plan before time began. Promised beforehand. And this good news has everything to do with God's son. It's regarding his son. And there's two things that we note regarding Jesus. He was fully human. He was a descendant of King David. And he was divine. And his deity was shown through the resurrection. That's why the resurrection is important. That's why we celebrate Easter. And Paul says, if he was not raised, we're a bunch of fools. We have no basis for hope in anything. He's fully man and he's fully God. And it concerns his death and his resurrection on the cross for your sins and mine. Here's what Peter wrote about Jesus' death. For Christ died for sins once for all. That's really important. Once for all. For all of us and one time. We don't have to have repeated sacrifice anymore. The righteous, that's Christ. He died for the unrighteous. That's me. That's you. Why did he do it? To bring you and me to God. To the God who made us. To the God who loves us. To the God who desires a relationship with us. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive. He was resurrected by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And when you think about the gospel, I I think one of the most helpful little pieces that I've come across is this thing called Two Ways to Live. In fact, if you go on our website and and you look in the top left hand of our homepage, you'll find a bunch of questions. And one of them is this question, wondering about God. You click on that link, and it gives you what I'm going to go through real quickly with you, which I think is a great summary, encapsulation of what is this good news and what should we do in light of it. So it's called Two Ways to Live. So let's look at the next screen. It starts off by this. God is a loving ruler of the world. He made the world, and he made us rulers of the world under him. So there we are. We're the stick person, right? We're on this earth. God's the ruler over us, and we're supposed to be living under his rule and taking care of his world. And the question is, is that the way it is now? And the answer is no. We put an X through God's crown, his rule. We say, God, thanks a lot. I'd like to be God for not just a day. Our, our uh, colleague, Randy Olson, um, you know, he's set up this wonderful partnership with Shank Elementary School. So this week, the principal of Shank said, Randy, we'd like you to be principal for the day. So this week, Randy was principal for the day. And it was great. And he's glad he's not principal every day. 
And we say to God, you know what? I, I, I want to be God for the day. No, not just God for the day. I want to be God for the rest of my life. I want to call the shots, okay? And so we reject his rule. We put the crown on our head. And the reality is we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. I mean, I can't even balance my checkbook, folks. Who am I kidding and thinking I can play God of anything? But we do. And so the question is, what does God do? What does the king do, the creator of all of this universe do, to people in his kingdom who reject him, who are treasonous? And the answer is, he brings us under the judgment of death. He won't let us rebel forever. And there we are. We're laid out under his judgment. We deserve to die. And we would say, well, man, that sounds pretty harsh. God, don't you know who we are? I mean, we are far from perfect people. You should know that. You should grade on a curve. But listen, it's this fundamental understanding right here that in rejecting God, we deserve death, that it all hinges. Because if we don't understand that, we'll never understand why we need a Savior. This is the bad news that the Scripture is very clear about. You and I have messed up. And we're responsible before a holy God for our actions. So it may sound um, it may sound severe, his justice, but it sets up God's mercy and grace. So here it is. Because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ, who always lived under God's rule. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. And so there Jesus is. He's lived a perfect life, the life that we were supposed to live, so that he might become the perfect sacrifice. And that's not all. Go ahead to the next screen. God raised Jesus to life after he was crucified on the cross. And he raised him up as the ruler of the world. That's why Jesus said, all authority has been given to me at the end of Matthew's gospel. He is now God's ruler appointed over all things. He's ascended the right hand of God. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. He's given us new life. He's going to return as judge. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us with basically two ways to live. We're either going to continue to reject God. And if we do, we are going to stay under his wrath. We're going to stay under condemnation, condemned by God, facing death and judgment. Or we can choose God's new way. And that is to submit to Jesus as our ruler, to rely and trust on Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. And the result is to find forgiveness and eternal life a quality of life that begins and a quantity of life that lasts forever. And so what is the right response? What do you do if you find yourself saying, well, that's who I am, but this is who I want to be. I have rejected God's rule, but I do want to trust in Christ, and I do believe I need his mercy. When the scriptures make it clear, we should ask God to change us so that we will be people who submit to Christ and that we will be people who go on starting today with faith that Jesus did die on the cross for my sins and continue to turn away from all that dishonored him, continuing to turn in faith to him. And there's this beautiful little prayer at the end of this little presentation that goes like this, beautiful because of its simplicity. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you, I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. 
I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. This is the good news. We are ambassadors. We've been given this message. And the word of God says, we got to share this message. And we got to live this message. Share it in our words and in our deeds. And when you think about joyfully sharing and living the good news, there isn't a better text that we can go to as we wrap it up than 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Paul says, we loved you guys so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, there's the word, but our own lives as well. Ah, there's living it out because you'd become so dear to us. Paul's love was so great for people that at one point in Romans, he writes, man, I wish that I was cursed. I wish that I could die for you so that you would know what it means to have your sins forgiven and have a relationship with God through Christ. Great love. And that great love spurred on this great joy, this joy that made him excited and happy to share because he'd experienced it. And he was excited to see how they would be changed by this gospel. He shared the gospel about our sins forgiven through Christ, and he shared his own life as well. There's a guy named Leroy Imes who said this, life without sharing your faith is like Coke without fizz, just flat. You know what? Some of us, we're bored right now. We're bored in our Christian experience in following Christ. And I guarantee you, there is nothing like going out this week and being a joyful witness that will add a whole lot of fizz to your life. It's scary stuff and exciting stuff. And there's nothing that will jazz you more in this year than God using you in somebody else's life and seeing the lights turn on in their minds and hearts and watching their life transform from the inside out. I'm convinced when you consider these seven values that this one has the most ability because they're all kind of connected. This one has the most ability to just have these other ones just just continually kind of explode in our lives because when we're sharing our faith, it is worshiping God in all of life. When we're sharing our faith, it is centering our lives on the word of God because we're sharing it and we're living it. When we're sharing our faith and people come to faith in Christ, we want them to experience the love of his family, the richness of community. And when we're sharing our faith, we, we realize, man, I don't have all the answers. I need more training. We're pursuing intentional training. And they come to faith and they're a new babe in Christ. And we're going, you need to grow. You need training. We share our faith We often understand it's because we've extended mercy and compassion to someone in a really difficult time. When we're sharing our faith, we're down on our knees saying, God, help me, because I can't find the switch to change this person's heart. You're going to have to do it. That's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, when he said, look, I planted. Apollos, this other leader in the church, he watered the seed, but it's God who makes it grow. Here are my concerns, though, for myself and for us as a church, that we wouldn't miss the obvious. 
And the obvious is how can we share our faith with people far from God if we don't have relationships with them? And that's why I'm so excited about walk across the room is God has put people in our life. And as we step out, taking little steps, watching God transform people's lives, this is going to be exciting. But let's not miss the obvious. Can't happen if we don't have those relationships. Let's not throw out the doctrine of hell. What I mean is we can believe it in our heads intellectually, but it doesn't grip our hearts. Let's never lose a passion for people who are lost without Christ. Third, let's not lose the balance of both sharing the good news and living the good news. It's like picking one of the others, like flying a plane with one wing. Are you kidding me? We're not going to do that. We need to have the message. We need to live the message. Let's never miss this whole thing of being bold and courageous. And at at the other hand, stepping back and saying, look, God is in control. He is sovereign, and he is going to work in people's lives to bring them to himself. So it doesn't all depend upon me. But I understand that God uses me, keeping that balance. Let's not see sharing our faith as an event, but see it as a process. Let's not get discouraged when we share with someone and they didn't respond in faith with Christ, but say, hey, this is just another link in the chain. And thank you, God, that I had a chance to put another link in the chain. Let's not lose our confidence in the gospel. Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation. So let's not lose our nerve that this word, as it's heard, brings faith. That's how God works. People hear the word of God. The spirit takes that word and impresses it in our hearts and he makes it grow. It's the word, the spirit working through the word. Let's not ever miss that. Lose our nerve, our confidence in the gospel's power. As I think about the future, I'm really concerned that we don't grow this church through a church version of musical chairs. So Door Creek keeps growing because people come from other churches. But Door Creek keeps growing because there's new family members and friends and work associates who heard it in our lives and heard it from our mouths and are coming to faith in Christ and we're growing from conversion growth, not just transfer. And finally, let's never lose the joy of sharing Christ with those who don't know him. I guess when I think of that, I think of a story I read this week about a little nine-year-old named Austin. Austin, bless it, was going in for a tonsillectomy and his mother writes up the story. Tina writes up the story in today's Christian magazine. She said they went in and they got all prepped for surgery and then they met the anesthesiologist, cool guy. He had this surgical cap on. It was all full of these colorful frogs. Clicked with Austin and told him what was going to happen. And as he's walking down the hall, Austin says, hey, doc, wait. I want to ask you a question. He says, yeah, what is it, little guy? He says, do you go to church? She says, no, I, I don't. But, you know, maybe I, I should consider that. He, he walks a few steps later. He says, are you saved? And he said kind of nervously, um, no, no, I'm not. But maybe I should think about that. And little Austin said, well, you should. Because Jesus is really great. Well, anyways, she writes that he's wheeled off in a surgery. Doctor walks away. The uh, surgery's over. And 
in walks this doctor. He says, um, Ms. Blessed, I don't usually come back and talk to the patients, but I just have to tell you a story about your son. Now she's getting nervous. Okay, what did he do? He said, when, when we were getting him just ready to start the surgery, I put the mask over his mouth, and all of a sudden he's pointing his mask like he wants to say something. So I take it off, and he says, hey, wait a minute, we got to pray. So little Austin prays. He says, dear Jesus, I pray that the doctors and the nurses will have a great day. And dear God, I pray for the doctor with the frog hat that he'll go to church and he'll find Jesus. Amen. And this doctor says, you know what blew me away? Is in his prayer, he didn't pray at all for himself or for his surgery. He prayed for me. And I just want to tell you, you got a special little guy there. So Tina's going, well, that's a cool story. So she's sitting there waiting, and then all of a sudden a nurse comes down, and she's going to take him to the post-op waiting room. And the nurse says, as they're walking there, she says, I got to tell you something, Miss Blessed. There's a bunch of nurses here that's worked with this anesthesiologist for a long time, and we've been talking to him about Jesus. And after the surgery, he came and he talked to us. And he talked to us about your son and specifically about his prayer. And he said, you know what? If this guy could pray for me without even thinking of himself, then maybe I need to consider his Jesus as well. You and I have an opportunity this week to be a joyful witness for Christ as we share and live the good news. May God help us. And in doing that, may it be our great joy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news. We thank you for your son who died on the cross to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. We thank you for his good work. And Lord, we would pray for those who have heard this but have not understood it. Before this word is snatched away from them, we pray that you'd plant that word, that you'd grant them faith to believe it and in believing it, find new joy and new life in your son. And for those of us who know that joy, we pray that you'd restore the joy of our salvation and that you would make us bold this week to share and live the good news. In Christ's name we pray, amen.